house. No, the right no, house. I didn't get We want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. There's no reason to be found. You have to stop taking people at their word. What are you celebrating? My last night of drinking. I'll give you some action. Did he hit you? I got nothing to say to you. All you gotta do is just start charging. You bastard! It's over! Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that's strapping a fake bomb to Hollywood and holding them hostage live on the air until they give us Flora Plum. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Chris File, and I'm here, as always, with my tower of six Grammys, Joe Reed. Picture me with that classic, like, I'm trying to hold all the Grammys for the press photo. That's that's me right now. I always Nora love Jones those. in her photo, though, I do believe was, like, holding the top of the tower with her chin, like... Oh, that's oh, cute. look, I'm just all, like, relaxed with all these Grammys. It's a great... It's it's one of my favorite sort of recurring Grammys. I don't really pay much attention to the Grammys at all anymore, but, like, when I do, I do like when somebody wins, like, five or six Grammys, and it's just, like, they're such unwieldy trophies anyway, so... Yeah, they don't watching- stack. They don't stack. They don't like you have, like, they're tough to, you know, it's not like an Oscar, which is like the platonic ideal of an award statue. Cause it's just like you can grip it by the base and you can hold it aloft and you can whatever. It's like a baton. It's like a, it's like a, you know, a relay race baton. Um, except very heavy and Emmys are weapons. Emmys have sharp corners and are dangerous around children and you should keep them away from like, you know, small kids or whatever, perhaps lock them up in like a, in like a safe or something. Was it you that observed that like the, uh, not that, I mean like rest in peace, the globes are gone, but like the globe redo of the trophy in recent years, was it you that said it looked like a beer can? (laughs) I might have, like, I did not care for the globe redesign. No, I did because it looked, yes, because what it It looks looks like like an aluminum sleeve around those newfangled. Yes. Those newfangled like Bud Light, cans that are that look like rocket ships that look so tacky that's what the new golden yes i absolutely said that because yes that's that's what they reminded me of and it had that like weird like matte sheen to it you know what i mean where it's no yes. longer sort of chromey so ugly it looks it's like so if you squeeze ugly. it too hard you'll crush it it looks so uh, like <laughs> i have so many thoughts about the golden globes we don't need to get into it again but i will just say maybe if they hadn't changed their trophy into looking something stupid they'd still be around um Anyway, yes. The Oscar is the is the best looking trophy. The Tony Award, I will say, is cute because and I don't know whether spinner. this is true, it's a fidget spinner. This is the thing, is you it really looks like if you were bored and you had a Tony Award on your desk, you could just sort of like flick the disc and it would it's like spin and it would be fun. And it would be like fun to do. It looks like a fun little trophy to have. What other trophies have Audra McDonald, email us and let us know if this is true. She has like a mousetrap board 
to like set all of them to spin. Audra McDonald is like those people who can um do wine glasses, a wine glass symphony, <laughs> except she does that with, with all of her Tonys and she just sort of sets them to spin at different intervals and it looks very impressive. They're like wind I, chimes. I guarantee you that's what Audra McDonald is doing in her free time. It's just Tony Award goofiness. Like yes, exactly. All right. Um I'm excited to talk about this movie. Uh, this a movie week, that we've like kind of uh, mentioned for a yeah. long time in private that we would want to do this movie. I've been hesitant because talking about Wong Kar Wai makes me feel fraudulent because I have not seen most of his movies. I've only I'm I'm bringing up his filmography now. Um, beyond the recent ones, which like I saw the Grandmaster. And uh, when it was, you know, an Oscar nominee that year. But beyond that, the only other Wong Kar Wai movie besides My Blueberry Nights that I had seen was Happy Together. Like, I've still not seen In the Mood for Love because... Oh, you've got a treat waiting for you, though. I know. So you know my thing with Netflix and Don't Tell Netflix? Everybody listening, promise, don't tell Netflix. Um, I'm on the disc plan, and I'll get the discs, and I'll just sort of, like, rip them to my hard drive or whatever. And that's how I sort of, like, have this cache of, like, movies that, like, I haven't seen yet but are waiting just to be watched. And so I went to go watch In the Mood for Love recently. And I realized that when you're ripping the DVDs of a foreign language film, you have to remember. You don't get subtitles. You have to remember to, like, click a box or whatever to also download the uh, subtitle track because it won't do it automatically. And I forgot to do that. So now I have in the mood for love, but it's with no subtitles. So, and I I'm mean, sure it's like, I'm you sure can it's gorgeous. Just probably watch a much, right. much better transfer of it on the Criterion channel right now. No, I know. But it's one of those things where it's like, especially like as I uh, just yesterday traveled via train uh, back home for the holiday. That's my time to like break out my hard drive full of movies and just sort of watch whatever. And I was so excited and I was like, Oh, I'll watch in the mood for love. And I had forgotten that I have this, you know, non subtitled, uh, uh, file on my computer. So anyway, woe is me. Whatever. Don't feel bad for me. I've had my time. So, um, I don't feel bad for you because you, you get should. to watch some of these movies for the very first time. Uh, that is the one. And also Chung King Express is, uh, one you should catch up on. I think maybe once I get past awards season this year, I'll do a proper Wong Kar Wai, uh, catch up and watch Chung King Express and In the Mood for Love in 2046 and, and, you know, whatever the Fallen Angels, I guess. I still have uh, plenty to see. Uh, I mean, like, he's also a filmmaker, too, that people have been talking a lot about because uh, he has a miniseries that'll be coming. But also um, with the Criterion Collection, like, re-releasing this box set of his work, and they're all getting remastered. And apparently they've... I haven't seen the transfer of some of these that I've seen original ones, but apparently In the Mood for Love is one of them that, like... He recolor graded it and people were initially like pissed about these restorations because uh-huh. they're like, oh, they fucked these movies up. And it's apparently like at the choice of Wong Kar Wai that he wanted to remaster them in such a way. And uh, people don't necessarily like the new transfers. Oh, is he, is he George Lucasing his way through his, uh, his library? 
Well, no, it's not like cops show up with walkie-talkies. In no, no, I know, it's, but I just mean, it's just like the Wong Kar Wai version of doing what George Lucas did, which is color correcting. You know what I mean? It's just like Right, right, right. Um, yeah, yeah, and yeah. some like other, I think, aspect ratio stuff on... Right. I, Fallen Angels is, I think, the one that I saw people being the most like, what happened here? Um, so what is your fave of all of his movies? That is hard because like we've talked about the like masterpiece ones i mean it, it, it it's like you know the the 2000 actress race where it's like i could pick something different sure. on any sure. different day one day it might be in the mood for love one day it might be chunking express one day it might be happy together i mean ask me today it's chunking express sure 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 I'm excited to get into this. I it's a, it's a it's been a shameful sort of black hole in my in my cinema bona fides for a while. So I've got to correct it. Why I bring up this box set though? That's like almost all of his you know feature films yeah. in the Criterion Collection. We're here today to talk about one that is conspicuously absent, and absolutely no one was like, "Well, why didn't they include?" this uh we're here to talk about my blueberry nights his first english language feature i would imagine his last english language feature i uh, hope he starring... can give it another shot again i feel like i don't feel like my blueberry nights was a confirmation that the english language medium is is not the one for him i feel like no it's not a good movie uh, i i hesitate it's a to call it a bad failure movie. it's yes it is as a Wong Kar Wai movie, it is a failure. I think as a movie stripped of, you know, take his name off of it or whatever, it's it's got its moments. It's not great. Yeah. There's there's it's very easy to point out what are the flaws in this movie, but it's got some moments, I will say. It's the type of movie that if you told me that it was the adaptation of some unfilmable great American novel or <laughs> sure. something, right. I would believe it. That's right. what this movie kind of plays like, you know? Right. It plays like a book that you just can't capture, like, the, the like, text of it well because it's, like... Yeah, You know, the prose doesn't translate yeah. to cinema or something. Oh, I was going to say, though, because you're mentioning the box set. And what's so funny is, as I'm going through these old reviews of My Blueberry Nights from the time, from when it came out, already, obviously, by this point, he had directed almost all of his, like, greats. Like, the only other movie he's made since then um, is The Grandmaster. The Grandmaster, which is wild. Which um, I feel like gives this movie an even more tainted reputation. Yeah, right. Like, I don't know, and I couldn't find like really any research or interviews about like if the failure of this movie like tainted his career in some way, right. or you know. But like, I do think because it feels like, and the Grandmaster, which the Grandmaster is interesting, is the only. Um, Wong Kar Wai movie with any Oscar nominations and that one had a really like fraught post-production history. Yes. Um, so like that one took a while to get to the screen but um, but what I yeah, was going to say just... about the box set though is that in those reviews for My Blueberry Nights Wong Kar Wai was already such a revered you know master of the craft that already people are like I wonder if they'll include this in the eventual Criterion box set for oh like my al God. like already that was a consideration and so, and 15 some people years ago <laughs> right and some people were just like 
I would be fine if they didn't. And some people were like, I bet you at some point Criterion will like include it and people will start making a case for like the secret greatness of this movie. Like already people were projecting out decades into the future. Um, and it has not come to pass that people have made a case for blue, my blueberry nights as secretly good. But like even still at this point, I wouldn't like, I wouldn't rule that out. In the future. Based on the reception and the kind of like non-release for this movie, though, like it's not that this movie isn't secretly good; it's that it's secretly not a disaster at all. Yes. Like it's you know, like yes. it feels like the world kind of treats it. We'll get into the Nora Jones of it all, but like, yes. I was kind of surprised. Like, I was expecting to watch like a kind of a disaster, but like I said, it's more of a fascinating Had failure. You seen it before? No. Oh, interesting. The other thing about the box set that I think is interesting is, like, sometimes, you know, what physical media criterion releases is sometimes rights issues. It's not like Mm. this movie isn't available. I watched it on IMDb TV. I watched it on Tubi. Like, it is, it's, it's very available. Or no, I watched it on the Roku channel. But it's also, I think, available on Not the Roku channel. Roku channels come through for me, I will say. Like I will say the the New York City of my blueberry nights is very Roku City. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> There's a lot of blues, purples. There's a lot of blues and purples. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, mm-hmm. blueberry nights. King Kong is climbing a tower in the background. <laughs> oh, it's just the Roku screensaver. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, the so it looks like the Roku screensaver. This movie really is kind of a nexus of like Joe's blind spots because watching this movie, I'm such an idiot. I'm watching this movie and I'm like, I wonder if there's like some like John sales to this. And then I stop myself and I'm like, Joe, you have seen maybe one John sales movie and it's not even like (laughs) the most, like, I don't know where I'm pulling. I'm pulling that straight out of my ass. Like I have no idea what I'm talking about. And yet there does seem to be some kind of like, the Americanness of my blueberry nights does seem to be pulling from some place that for as a reference point, and I'm not, and it s- slightly. I kind me. of got like because of the like. It's also that David Strathairn is in it, and that's ma- making me think of John Sales too. So like, <sighs> okay, I wasn't going to get into this yet. Yes, you but... were. You liar. You absolute liar. You absolutely were going to get into this. No, I was going to save this for later because like we're on a thread that I want us to stay on. I want to say. We are a David Strathairn is hot podcast, <laughs> but we're talking about the one movie where David Strathairn is not hot. I need us to move on from this. Dolores <laughs> Claiborne is also a movie where David Strathairn is not hot. We've talked about this. F- for obvious reasons, for obvious reasons. Yes. But uh, David Strathairn, not hot in this movie. Sorry. I'm so sorry, Chris. Um, no, what I was going to say to like your point where it seems like there's maybe some other influences or Wong Kar Wai wants to do his version of a certain type of narrative. I think there's this like, and this is why I'm like, if you told me this was based on a book, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, yeah. But it's not. It's based on a short film. Like a Kerouac some... book or something, right? Like something from exactly. like Exactly. Yeah. It's like trying to channel, Wong Kar Wai is trying to channel that through, you know, his vibe, which is like yes. very distinct vibe. He's like one of the few like uh, living originals that it feels like, you know, he 
fully does his own thing and you don't necessarily see the influences there yeah. like you do with Malik basically right. um, Malik I feel like one of the other ones but it does kind of, like I got kind of Paris Texas in there like Wong Kar Wai's uh-huh. version of Paris Texas a movie that I have seen maybe there is maybe there is a little little vendors in that yeah maybe that's what I'm I'm seeing yeah that's interesting but, like, I think because it's, you know, it's a road movie, basically. It's a road movie where, like, yeah. you don't see the road. If <laughs> it, Harry you Dean just Stanton, see all the stops. If Harry Dean Stanton had showed up in this movie, you would not have, like, blinked an eye. Like, he would no. have, like, fit really well. Yeah. No, it, it is very that. Um, yeah. I... And it's like, uh, there's stuff in there that is very good and very bad, and it's a lot of it... Not... I shouldn't say very bad, but, like, it's a swing. Like... It's yeah. Natalie Portman doing a swing. It's Rachel Weisz doing a swing. Natalie it's... Portman doing yet another Southern accent in a movie oh, that we're boy. talking about on our podcast. I liked this one better than uh, than Lucy in the Sky, but it was close. We are it was a close contest. We are not only the uh, chief historians of Natalie Portman Southern dialects. We are also <laughs> the chief historians of Natalie Portman between Star Wars and her Oscar, which okay. is like. We we need to get to the other side of this plot description because I have a lot to say <laughs> about the Natalie Portman part of this. Movie. We'll put a pin in Natalie Portman. We will return to that, and yeah. we also need to have this conversation about Rachel Weisz too. Yes, we and do. Jude Law because yes. like this movie is a convergence of a lot of people yep. in really kind of tricky yep. uh, career moments, yep. but then it's all centered around. <laughs> I won't say the first screen performance because her screen debut is in two weeks' notice. Um, really? Who was she in two weeks' notice? She's Nora Jones in two weeks' notice. Oh, okay. She's, like, she's at a piano singing a okay. song. Uh, <laughs> she's the Vonda Shepherd of that movie. Exactly. The, um, uh, the screen performance of Nora Jones, who critics were not nice to, and I think... She's fine. She's fine. She's fine. She's not great. She is not, like, failure. I I will say, a stronger lead actress maybe elevates the movie more, and the movie needs that more. But, like, Nora Jones isn't dragging this movie down. She's just not elevating it. She's not embarrassing herself either. I don't think think so. I think it's maybe a nothing character that, like... yeah. You know, Wong Kar Wai doing his thing, you know, wants, like, very compelling uh, performers. Nora Jones is not Tony Lang Chuai. No. <laughs> he is not Maggie Chung. Uh, right. Or she is not Maggie Chung. I uh, saw that in some of the reviews, too, bad. where it's just like, Nora Jones, she's no Maggie Chung. And I'm like, fuck you. Like, that's such a high standard <laughs> to put on this woman. Like, my good gosh. Anyway, guys, we are here talking about My Blueberry Nights. Uh, we will get to the plot description so that you can tell... Uh, what the hell this movie is about. Uh, it is written and directed by Wong Kar Wai, uh, the legend, uh, scr- uh, co-written with Lawrence Block, starring Nora Jones, Jude Law, Natalie Portman, David Strathairn, Rachel Weiss, uh, Frankie Faison, and Adrian Lennox, who I'm always very happy to see. Me too. Um, uh, the movie opened in competition, opened the Cannes Film Festival. Yeah. Uh, festival opener, uh, and then opened limited in the states almost a year later. It had had some of its international release by that time. Yeah, but a lot of its Oscar buzz was pre two thousand seven Oscar season. That's when a lot of people were looking. It's can Oscar to buzz, it. you right. know, like yes. leading yeah. up to yes. its premiere. Yes, exactly. 
Joe Reed, are you ready to give a 60-second plot description of My Blueberry Night? I mean, yes, but I should I should note that I have not made notes for this, so I am flying free for this. So we'll see how it goes. Alrighty. Yeah. Then your 60-second plot description of My Blueberry Nights starts now. All right, come away with Nora Jones. She is a she is a young woman in New York City who goes to this cafe that Jude Law is like the like kindest person like making blueberry pies and whatever and he clearly has a thing for her and he sort of like nudges her into realizing that her boyfriend's cheating on her and you think they're going to get together but then like for whatever reason she like moves to memphis and becomes a waitress at a diner and also a bartender in the same place and it's in this area that david strathairn is a 30 seconds cop and he's got a floozy wife played by rachel vice and they're yelling each other all the time and then he dies in a car crash and rachel vice has to pay his bar tab and then uh elizabeth who is now lizzie but now she's maybe beth moves to vegas or someplace and she runs into natalie portman who's a card player and natalie's got her own problems and she's gonna give nora a car but then she loses the car and then she's um and then nora makes it back to new york and jude law is still there and he's still very handsome and they finally uh it looks like they're gonna make it happen that's basically it you really missed no plot there. Yeah, like there isn't. I'm a pretty whole sure lot. it's Vegas because the movie was shot in Vegas. Yeah, well, but there you go. Uh, yeah. it definitely has like a Reno vibe. I think there's one part Vegas. of the of the Natalie stuff that's in like a smaller town in Nevada where there's like like small time card games happening, and then she they eventually go to Vegas where like the, there's the thing with like Natalie's dad or whatever, and the car, the Jaguar. Um, anyway, it's a very episodic movie. It's very clearly inviting you to, like, be like, this is the part that works best, and this is the part that doesn't work best. And, like, I think the part that works the least is very obvious, but I'm interested to hear what you think. I mean, I would probably say the Rachel Vice stuff. Yeah. Because that's where I'm like, why are we here? What are we doing? It's... It's one of those, it's, the movie becomes a different thing in that part of the movie. And I agree with you. I think the why are we here is very pertinent. Like, there isn't really a great plot reason why Lizzie, Elizabeth, whatever, we're, the, the thing with the characters, she's Elizabeth in New York, and then she's Lizzie in Memphis, and then she's Beth in Nevada. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway. It's all, well. Which is funny because like it's saying, not it's like not... she's a demonstrably different person. Like she's very no. much kind of a cipher character. Like she's the, she's there to observe the other storylines, right? Like she's a little bit more involved with like Portman, but like not really. She's just sort of a sounding board for these people. But the Portman section, I mean, like I almost think the movie would work better. It geographically wouldn't make any sense, but like. If the Natalie Portman section was before the Rachel Vice and like, because that is a more plotty section of the movie, Mm -hmm. whereas it feels like the Rachel Vice portion is like, look at these characters, look at this local color, she's taking it in. Like, I think there's just a better flow if those two were flipped, but the, hmm. You do re- uh, like I don't want to be mean to Nora Jones. Uh, she's fine. She has millions upon millions and Grammys and multiple number one albums. She she'll survive. Yeah. Um, but uh, you really do need a much more compelling. Yeah, you do presence 
even though I don't think she's necessarily bad. It's just like it relies on us to be so like charmed and yeah. interested and like, you know, at like the every move of this woman. And she's not necessarily that idiosyncratic of a performer. Right. And like, I think the added factor of it's Nora Jones makes it all a little bit more bizarre than it should be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, Interestingly, I think Natalie would have worked well in the lead role. And you cast somebody else to play the Vegas poker player. I mean, sure. I feel like I don't know if she would make more interesting choices because, like, on paper, it's just not a great character. No, but I think, but again, I think you would have a more sort of arresting, compelling presence there. I think I don't think it fixes all the movie's problems, but I'm trying to, like, mentally, like, who would I have cast as a more sort of dynamic lead actress and that sort of age range? And if you did it that way, it would definitely make for a much more linear, uh, closer sequel. (laughs) Yeah. Well, also, she has her hairstyle in this is very reminiscent of when we first meet Alice in... uh, um, her hairstyle in this is like when Nomi Malone has her hair pulled up. I didn't <laughs> understand the wig. I didn't. Wow. Wow. Like, I hate to be, I don't necessarily want to be a wig gay, but I, the wig gays need to maybe see Natalie Pullman's <laughs> hair in this movie. I love just categorizing the wig gays. Like, at some point, we're all going to be a wig gay for a moment. Um, that's what Andy Warhol said, right? Everybody for 15 minutes will be a wig gay um, mm-hmm. in their lives in the future. Yes. Yep. Okay. Um, uh, that's what Factory Girl is about. It made me think... <laughs> Specifically Miller, at that moment in time when he said that. Yeah, Sienna Miller, kind of an interesting choice for the lead character of My Blueberry Nights. Anyway. Um, Living with a wig gay you love is sometimes lonelier than being a wig gay alone. Shut up. <laughs> um, uh, that's two episodes in a row now we've referenced the Sienna Miller... <laughs> <laughs> uh, Let's see how long I can group. keep it going. Oh my god, I, I'm willing to ride that ride with you. I'm re- I'm willing to see where that goes. Um, wait, I was gonna say something. Shit, I can't remember now. I totally. Oh, the Natalie thing. So I, li- it made me wonder and and go and look up where V for Vendetta was in the timeline. Of this and it was after this, but it was just after this because I was like, at what point did Natalie shave all of her hair off? And like at, and you know, and then it, that it became her like brief pixie cut era, right, where she was just sort of like growing it out and whatnot. Anyway, I thought the pixie cut was also during the Wes Anderson short. Yeah, but wasn't that filmed after V for Vendetta? Huh. But isn't this the same year as? So, uh, My Blueberry Nights premieres at Cannes in the spring of 07. Darjeeling Limited, Hotel Chevalier, is later on in 2007. And then V for Vendetta, I believe, is like February 08. But I'm willing to bet that she filmed V for Vendetta before she filmed Darjeeling, Hotel Chevalier. Don't quote me. Yeah, that, I mean, that makes sense. Wasn't. V for Vendetta kind of shuffled around a bit too. Didn't its release date move? It's very possible. Um, hold on. Now I'm kind of. I don't think it was like my Blueberry oh, Nights was. Where I'm it was absolutely. A year. I'm absolutely up a goddamn tree. I don't know why I thought V for Vendetta was 08. V for Vendetta is 05. So this is all after V for Vendetta, which makes a ton of sense. Um, Blueberry Nights is Darjeeling. All of that. So. Don't ever listen to me about anything. I'm canonically wrong about things. <laughs> so. 
And in fact, V for Vendetta might have been filmed before Closer, if this is, if it was, because it was, I know, I remember it being like an early in the year release. It was March. It was. Doesn't she wear a wig through the entirety of Closer, though? Yeah. Well, various wigs. Um, I don't think any of that is her hair. Okay, so here's the deal. Now, all right, everybody listening to this, just like never listen to me ever again. V for Vendetta <laughs> gets one of those uh, 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 Austin, um, what you call it, the the Harry Knowles, whatever festival, right? Um, Ain't it cool news? Yes, they're, they're they're like little festival. That was one of the movies that they they screened there at the end of '05. It doesn't open in theaters until early '06, but that still places it before Blueberry Nights and before. Darjeeling or whatever. So this is all post post head shave moment for Natalie. This is a big moment. I would we say need a famous actress to shave her head again. I was gonna say we haven't had one since Anne Hathaway, right? Hmm. I don't think so. Somebody do that. Somebody Carrie Mulligan, get on that. I don't know why I just threw her name out there, but I feel like she would do it. Um Rosamond Pike be even more terrifying. With the, with the <laughs> Rosamund Pike shaving her own head, selling you cryptocurrency. <laughs> Rosamund Pike is like, I believe in Goldman Sachs so much that I will shave my head in this commercial for you. <laughs> um, terrifying, absolutely terrifying. Um, wait, okay, back to Blueberry Nights and back to the the Rachel Vice Stratheron because I do feel like this is the weak part of the movie. This is when it all becomes this very melodramatic like Nora Jones is, is a fly on the wall to this very fraught boozy relationship like Rachel Weiss's character in this movie is in the dictionary next to the word floozy like it's just <laughs> it's it's a real broad characterization of this like like you know bar wench essentially and it's it also just them as co-stars together. Something about that they look so familiar to me to the point where, like, the final shot of the movie that like R- Spider-Man kiss, but they're laying down. Mm. Like because it's Nora Jones in profile, it looks like Rachel Vice. Yeah, so oh, that's interesting. They they were weird screen partners to me. It's so I feel like. This seems to me the most sort of stereotypical. This seems like not to like, you know, try and get into Wong Kar Wai's head or anything, but it does feel like he had seen American movies. <laughs> you know what I mean? About, uh, you know, boozy couples, you know, haunting bars and whatnot. And it all feels pretty standard and pretty uninspired. And yeah. as a result, especially Vice's character, really suffers because she just seems stereotypical and she seems like a stock, you know, boozy, cheating wife. And it really does not serve her performance that well, which is too bad because this is coming on the heels of her Oscar-winning performance in Constant Gardener, which Mm -hmm. she wins that award while she is pregnant. And so... She kind of takes some time to have a baby, and she doesn't really make a whole ton of movies 
in the she intro. She makes the fountain. She makes the fountain, which again, famously fraught production. Had Aronofsky had been trying to make that movie for years, almost made it with Brad Pitt and Kate Blanchett. We should do the fountain. The version that I love the fountain. The version that gets made is like a third of the original budget right. and right. like scope of what it was supposed to be. They had like sets built for that movie. Yeah. And it fell apart right before right so it ends up being vice in the in the role that blanchett was going to play and then hugh jackman in the role that brad pitt was going to play i really love the fountain too but i get why nobody saw it you know what i mean like i get why it puzzled a lot of people it um it is perhaps the best movie score of my lifetime watching movies like it's so so good i could endorse that um but anyway we'll do the fountain one day so what had Vice made anything else between Constant Gardener and this besides the fountain? Uh, she was a voice in the Aragon movie, but because that's not a real movie, it doesn't count. <laughs> that movie is not real. Aragon is dragon with an e instead of a d, is what I have to say about Aragon. Um, <laughs> that's the that's the fun little wordplay. What was the song? It was a, there was what was the Avril Lavigne song that was the theme song oh, to Aragon? No. Yes, it was. Do you not remember this? Um, no. Uh, it, I think it was "Keep Holding On" was was uh, essentially like love theme from Aragon. Yeah. Um, what? Which is actually not a bad Avril song. It's sort of like no, I didn't have any association of that song to that movie. Yep. But you can't have an association to, of a song to a movie <laughs> when the movie Doesn't uh, isn't real. Yeah. Okay. Um, but so yeah, so the fact that this was basically, you know, it was the rare Rachel Vice, you know, film that we were getting at this point. This was also during the time where she would she was making that movie, I think, right? Agora, the uh the movie about yes, the um, the Amenabar film. Yes, which seemed like it was in production for 20 years. It just seemed like it was always about to be like maybe it'll happen this year. And it eventually got released in I want to say 2009, although again, I am not a reliable narrator anymore when it comes to release dates. So let this me This is a movie that if we if we wanted to do, it would require so much research because the pre-production, production, release, post-production of that movie was so, like... Protracted? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was a can and TIFF movie in 09, and then it didn't make it into uh, American theaters. And I say theaters with very much scare quotes because, like, I would be shocked if it played more than, like, nine theaters ever um, in, in early 2010. So... Uh, but that was around this time where I, where it felt like there was Oscar buzz for that, if only because like it was a Menabar and he had done, you know, the others, and that was such a success for Kidman, and it was like ancient Egypt, and it was a it was the rare movie that had big scope and big sort of like historical epic sheen to it, but it was unambiguously a lead actress film. Right. Mm-hmm. So I remember there being like great excitement for that. And I was kind of bummed when it never really amounted to much. And, but anyway, so like we were in kind of a, a Rachel Vice desert at this point. And it bummed me out that her performance and her role in Blueberry Nights was not only like not much of anything, but kind of like an active detriment to the movie. And I don't think it's her. I don't want to blame it on her. It's not like she she's not giving a good performance, but it is of a horribly written character. <laughs> right? 
And she's asked to go big with it, too. Yeah, yes. Like, it's supposed to be this, like, pseudo-American odyssey through dive bars and, like, dive bar culture type of thing. Right. So it's like, you can see why she would be making the choices she is making. Yeah. But it's just not good. It's not. It's not, unfortunately. Strathairn fares a little bit better. He's a little more of a... Um, a slow burn. He's sort of, you know, sort of quietly drinking himself to death or whatever. He has this quirk where the first time he and Nora Jones speak, he tells her that this is his last day of drinking. And then the next time they meet, he's drunk again. And she said, I thought, you know, uh, I thought you would quit drinking. And he's like, no, today is my last day of drinking. So every day is his last day of drinking. Um, so clearly you get the sense that like he is, you know, headed down a path that is ultimately very self-destructive and yada, yada, yada. So a lot of the movie is this part of the movie, which is unfortunate for mm-hmm. us, for the movie. Um, anyway, um, eventually we make it to Nevada and the Natalie Portman stuff, which I could watch her playing cards and giving shit to guys, like, for a while in this movie. I think that's entertaining. (laughs) I think that's fun. Um, Accent, you know, and all. I don't know. She refers to Nora Jones as tits. Yeah, that's fun. That's just fun stuff. I like that. Um, I like Natalie in that mode. There's a lot lot of... um, you know, plain Jane Jones in that character a little bit. There's a little sort of sparkle, a little, you know, again, there's self-destructiveness with her as well. I think that's sort of a through line through the Memphis stuff and the Nevada stuff is there are these characters who are kind of, you know, they're rolling along in a life that is ultimately not working for them, right? And that's Mm -hmm. sort of... Her thing, I think the stuff with with that character's father is a little less effective because ultimately we're not really invested in that. And again, we're nominally invested in the Nora Jones character, except there isn't much there there. She keeps sort of writing these letters back to Jude Law, and we cut back to him every once in a while. At some point, he um, has this sort of quasi breakup conversation with his ex who is played by cat power who is not a musician that means a whole lot to me but i don't know if you're a cat power person uh cat power is great live very good all right how did you like her performance in this film I was like, who the hell is this? And I, it was driving me crazy. And then I looked it up afterwards. I was like, cat power. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so we sort of have this, we keep checking in with that relationship. And clearly that's the more important relationship of the movie. It did make me wish that we could have just gotten a Wong Kar Wai movie with Jude Law, even with Nora Jones. Like, I think that works out better for Nora Jones. If you just let that stuff kind of sink in. Those are her best scenes. I mean, like, also I think those are maybe the best scenes of the movie are her and Jude Law, even though it's a little cutesy, a little, like, obviously thematically. This is where the the movie gets its title. Right. Because every day there's a blueberry pie in 
the but nobody bakery, whatever. It. Yeah. Nobody ever orders any of it, so he's always throwing away a blueberry pie. So she herself feels like that blueberry pie. And it's all like obvious, whatever, blah 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 blah, but it does work and it feels like, you know Yeah. There's you also You want to see the Wong Kar Wai movie of that relationship and you don't really want to see this road trip, you know. Yeah. I wanna talk about the actual filmmaking of the movie too because uh, the blueberry pie is a good entry to this because there's a lot of um sort of artful interstitial flashes of a very very close up shots of blueberry pie with like melty vanilla ice cream and sort of whatnot and it's all supposed to be very sensual and you know Almost magical, kind of. Well, when the movie opens with it, I was like, "Wait, what am I looking what at? What am I this looking looks at? Like, a, is this a crime scene? What? Yes, you know. I think there is. A, I think there is a bit of a gulf between what those shots are supposed to communicate and what they are communicating. Because at some point, you know that thing where, like, if you look at anything close and close up enough, it just looks like churning chaos. You know what I mean? Like, yes. that's sort of how that appears and also there is a style to this movie i imagine this was shot on digital but i'm not sure at this point probably not maybe not there's something that reminds i don't think christopher doyle it's not christopher doyle it's darius kanji oh it's darius kanji yeah that was like um, well, a big I guess thing. That's why it looks a little different. That was a big thing. I is that totally like, yes overlooked that? Because um, yes, he had worked. Wong Kar Wai had worked with Christopher Doyle and all of his other movies, and this one, uh, it's it's Darius Kanji, who had done Seven and um, I can't think of others off the top of my head, but yes, that's all fine because apparently Christopher Doyle is reportedly whisper campaign a bastard. Oh really? Um, oh <laughs> well, there we go. Um, but there's something so. Um, I mentioned the digital just because there were parts of this movie that reminded me a little bit of things like Michael Mann's Collateral, which was around this time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, a couple I mean, years before yeah. this, but so, but anyway, there's um, there's a lot of kind of cuts to like something will be going on, and they'll cut to like a shot of something else happening at the bar, or like. You know, an overhead shot of people at the diner. And it felt kind of music video to me a little bit. I don't know if you felt that way. It's very distinct to Wong Kar Wai's, like, thing and, like, his visual language. Um, Like, this movie is still that. But there's something about what's not working in this movie that really does push it in that direction. Right. Like, it feels like we're getting, you know, Nora Jones's visual album with the songs missing. It felt um, like, you know how, like, in it felt like the 90s era, like, Levi's commercials. Like, that was a little bit of what, do you, do, do, am I, do, do I sound, do I sound crazy when I say that, though? Because No, like, you don't, unfortunately. And again, like, I think all of this, stuff like you're that like we're both saying here is like this is very much like in a lot of ways as a visual stylist what Wong Kar Wai just does but because of because like the story isn't really connecting to it and because you know um 
whatever. It feels like a cliche version we've seen before from people like Vim Vendors or John Sales, as people we've mentioned, uh, that like it does come across as something silly like that. So I want to, I don't want to move off of the Jude Law thing quite so quickly because he's another interesting. This is an interesting phase of his career. And we've talked a f- uh, several weeks ago. We did all the King's Men, but I don't think we really lingered too much on the Jude of it all. So we. Because we've talked so much about him, we are also the main historians of everybody hating Jude Law for being in a million things. Right. At one and time. we definitely talked about this. We obviously did the episode with, uh, with Griffin Newman when we talked about Alfie, and that was one of the famous, uh, Six movies in in the latter half of 2004 stretch. So that happens. We've talked about the Oscars. We've talked about Chris Rock making fun of him. We talked about Sean Penn, you know, riding valiantly to his defense. But after that, he's not in anything in 05. And then in 06, All the King's Men, which is quickly sort of swept away. Um, Technically, Breaking and Entering opens in 06 but that was a qualifying movie I that think. was a qualifying movie and nobody that was another one where like and that's an anthony Mangala movie um doesn't really get seen by anybody until early 07 and even in that uh in that case now i want to look up really quickly because i want to say even in 07 like people i remember that being just like late 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 like people didn't really talk about that movie until its awards, you know, chances were already gone. And it was a lot of, like, looking back and being like, you know what actually was a good movie was Breaking and Entering. Um, And I do think that is true. Um, But, again, nobody saw that. That's... Juliette Binoche is the female lead in that movie, right? And Robin Wright, I think? Mm, Yes. Yes. And, oh, wow, Vera Farmiga is also in this movie. fascinated to see it. Oh, have you not seen it? It's a good movie. I haven't. It's a good, solid movie. But anyway, not a lot of attention on that. And then uh, the he holiday. He did the Branagh Sleuth, too, at some uh, during this yes. time period, which I just recently got up to, trying to watch more of Kenneth Branagh's directorial movies. And it is right. uh, really bad. Yeah. And that was another one that sort of got like swiftly swept away, as did my Blueberry Night. So really, in this stretch between... The, you know, six movies in 04, and then when he kind of resurfaces in the mainstream in Sherlock Holmes in 09, it's really only The Holiday, the Nancy Myers movie The Holiday, that has any kind of profile. So it's like, this is a desert of Jude Law's career. And then by the time he came back, it was sort of the Jude Law, kind of what we know of now, which is kind of post-youth Jude Law. You know what I mean? The thing where I've always talked about how nobody has ever... Um, weaponized losing their hair the way that Jude Law has because he's really <laughs> turned it into like a character beat in all of his movies where like it's it it's there when he's Watson in Sherlock Holmes but it's like it's backburnered but like it's a it's part of his character in Contagion it's very much part of his character in Anna Karenina it is very much a part of his character in um uh what you call it. Even Grand Budapest, but what's the one I'm mostly thinking of? Oh, The Young Pope. Like, The Young Pope is like, Jude Law was once, you know, this, like, young hot thing, and now he is this, like, older hot thing. And it's just, like, it's a whole, (laughs) you know what I mean? 
<laughs> and like it's there in Vox Lux. It's there when he's fucking Dumbledore. Like it's this. It's you know the last. I mean, it's the last decade of Jude Law. You've invoked. You've invoked the uh, name of it. Uh, we we doing this movie means that we absolutely have to be doing Vox Lux at some point in the future because close the loop <laughs> on the Portman uh, uh, Jude Law. Jude Law. Yeah. Yeah. Four movies. We can't do closer, obviously. Right. And we can't do uh, Cold Mountain, even though we talked about it a ton uh, on our 2003 miniseries. But yeah, that's four movies that Jude Law and Natalie Portman have been in together. And I feel like we haven't seen the last of it. Like, it does feel like that. I hope we haven't seen the last of it. That does feel like a pairing that will, you know, recur. This one is the most tenuous because obviously they don't share any scenes together. Um, But. They were like, they're one of the best parts of Cold Mountain, their part together. I, as you know, am a giant fan of Closer, and I think they're both fantastic in that movie. Um, I am also a fan of Vox Lux, and they are, they have a very comfortable and good screen chemistry. Like, they really do. They're really wonderful together. Um... But this is a real interesting, this is, he really did kind of go away for a while. It really did feel like the, the 2004 failure. It probably scared a lot of studios away from like hiring him for big roles. It was sort of mm-hmm. like, remember when Daniel, not uh, Daniel Craig, Clive Owen sort of attained the reputation of not only that like he, he can't open movies, but like, it all it almost felt like he was box office poison, which is dumb because it's like Clive Owen was never. I guess maybe he they was did in a have, lot of bad movies and a lot of movies that blur together. Well, but he was also, with but the was, exception of Children. Of I was going to say part of it was also that Children of Men didn't make the kind of money that people wanted it to make, which is kind of crazy to think about in the you know in retrospect because like that is that's a very it's a perfect movie, but it's also a very that's movie. that studio's fault. They've yes. bungled that release. It is, but so but so at some point, Clive Owen sort of attained this reputation that like nobody wants to see a Clive Owen movie, and then just like the roles just sort of dried up for him, and he had to start sort of coming to you know taking an end run around his career essentially. I mean, he hasn't really come back, no, and he I've hasn't. seen z- truly zero people talking about him in impeachment. Um, I have a little bit, and I've, and I think people came around to that perform. I think a lot of it was just like, I can't believe that's Clive Owen playing Bill Clinton. It was one of those like, it was so just uncanny kind of a thing, and people were not didn't quite know how to take it in. I've only seen the first few episodes of Impeachment, so I can't really talk about it too much. But um, Jude Law's career is really fascinating to me just for the way that he was able to emerge from that desert. And he really could have like just sort of slunk away after the O four sort of drubbing that he took. And he's become a much more interesting actor. Not that he wasn't interesting in his sort of early aughts sort of, you know, post Ripley period, but I always look forward to a Jude Law performance now. I mean, he's not exactly like a box office draw, no. but I do think what's interesting about his career is now he is very much easily um, achieving the type of thing that we thought that he would. I mean, again, with the caveat of he's not a box office draw, but who the fuck is these days? Exactly. Um, 
But, like, he can go between these more interesting character roles, and then he can go and do fucking villains and superhero movies just right. as easily, and he can be Watson, and, like, he can kind of do just about anything that he's tasked to. 2019 um, to 2020, the fact that he was able to do Captain Marvel and The Nest with the new... God, he's so good in The Nest. With the new Pope sort of, like, in that in that range, right? He's so fucking good in the nest. And people rightly gave Carrie Coon like best in show honors there. And there was a campaign for her for best actress that unfortunately didn't go anywhere. And we will do the nest at some point on this podcast because we both need to just scream at people about how they didn't appreciate this movie. (laughs) About how much we love that movie. Um, But he, he is playing a role that you are not supposed to like him. He is definitely like that. It's, but he's doing it so well, and he's putting his whole ass into that into that role. Like he really invests, and again, it's it's new Jude Law to a T, right? Because what that role is is what if capitalism just like rotted a man out from the inside, right? And and you can't cast anybody but Jude Law for that. Well, it's it, it, he brings such a fascinating element to that because it's just like this, again, this like once, again, not like Jude Law isn't number one on, if you had sex with Jude Law, he would be the only thing you'd ever talk about for the rest of your life, right? <laughs> like, he's that hot. My mind was more so going to Jude Law is just too famous to be on Succession, but like, Otherwise, would just, be. just though, like just too famous. He would have to show up at like the last two episodes of the series, right, or something. Like, yes. Um, and that that said, I want to see Jude Law and Brian Cox in like a play or something like that. I think that would I think that would rule. Anyway, um, he's just perfectly cast in the nest because it's this sort of like post youth and beauty phase to Jude Law that is like. The post Pretty Boy sort of era, the post Gigolo mm-hmm. Joe, the post Dickie Greenleaf thing, that is so fascinating to me, and it's perfect in that. I think, I think like Jude Law is our greatest living, uh, not arbiter, but like the greatest living vessel uh, for men who are pathetic. He plays pathetic yes. people. Yes, so. This well. is why I love him in Closer. And people hated that aspect of him in Closer because I think people were not ready yet for him to embody that. And in that movie, he is pathetic. And people hated the movie, I think, a little bit and his performance specifically for being that. But I'm like, no, like that's that's the point of it. That's mm-hmm. the absolute point of it. He's that's not the point supposed of the nest. That's the point yeah. of. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, love Jude Law. Um, I want to dip into the Cannes Film Festival, if we could. 07, a very Oscar-y Cannes. A very Oscar-y Cannes. So before we started recording, I pulled up that 2007 Cannes Film Festival page on Wikipedia, and it has the poster for it. And I want to <laughs> visually sort of, we've, we've you know, described posters before on this show, and I, I do enjoy it. It is... A whole bunch of movie stars and auteurs sort of jumping in the air. You know that thing where, like, photograph me when I, like, jump in the air and, like, my, you know, I'm kicking my legs out. I'm showing you I'm having a good time. I'm fun. I'm, yeah. So it's, 
from like lower to higher on the poster, we'll move left to right, right? So first of all, Bruce Willis in which from this vantage point looks like pajamas. Um, it's all black and white too is the other thing. Um, it is Samuel L. Jackson. And I believe a lot of these photos were taken during the 06 can. Yeah, this is that was a good observation on your part. Um, Samuel L. Jackson doing like a weird like cannonball pose with his signature Kangol hat. Um, Pedro Almodovar, who looks so happy. Like, I don't know what caused him to jump into the air in this particular way, but he looks incredibly <laughs> happy. Center square in this is Juliette Binoche looking like her chocolat character, like, it's sort of like riding a bicycle down a hill pose, where, like, her arms are outstretched, and she's feeling the sunshine on her face. Like, it's one of those looks. Um, Who else am I looking at on this poster? Well, Wong Kar Wai is on this poster, is the other thing. Mm-hmm. Um, who's the person at the top? I cannot recognize this sort of Andre Leon Talley pose, which is like caftan, like wings spread. Oh, by the way, wait, you haven't seen House of Gucci yet. I have not. I see it tomorrow. I'll say nothing more then. We'll, 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 uh, we'll. I assume that this is caftan related, in which case you've made me more excited than I already was. <laughs> but anyway, um, Jane Campion is on this poster. Uh, Gerard Depardieu is on this poster. It says on Wikipedia that Penelope Cruz is on this poster, and I'm trying to find her. Anyway, it's... Is that... I don't know. Anyway. It is very class graduation. Now take a funny one. Yes. It is 100% now take a funny one. Yes. Anyway. Um... You're right. Not me being goofy. <laughs> so the jury is also a really interesting jury. It's one of those, like, I, sometimes you'll look at canned juries and be like, which one would I want to, like, spend a long dinner talking about movies with? And, like, this is an interesting one. Uh, Tony Collette, Maggie Chung, Sarah Polly, um, Stephen Frears was the jury president. Um, I'm trying to see if I know of any of these other... There's Natal- Maria de Medeiros. Maria de, de Medeiros, who was in... Speaking of Bruce Willis and, and Samuel Jackson, was also in Pulp Fiction, right? Yes. Um. Anyway, uh, really interesting jury. And yeah, and so the film's in competition. This was the year that four months, three weeks, and two days won the Palme d'Or. And A notorious uh, international feature, foreign language film. I only uh, just saw it for the first time over quarantine. Um, I really. Oh God, what a rough quarantine! <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't early quarantine. It was like post-election quarantine when, like, my nerves ah. were a little bit less, um, marginally less fraught. I think it might be even, maybe even like after I had gotten, um. So you decided to watch the most stressful thing. I was like, I need to bring that stress level back into my life. So I decided. I need normalcy again. I need to be anxious. It's one of those. It's a great movie that I will never see again. Kind of a thing. Um, But really, really good. Uh, The eventual Oscar winner, No Country for Old Men, was at this can. David Fincher's Zodiac, which we previously raved about on this podcast, and I will continue to rave about forever. Diving Bell and the Butterfly was an Oscar success uh, later this year. Quentin Tarantino's... Persepolis. Persepolis, right. Persepolis was a big Oscar thing. 
um quentin tarantino's death proof which eventually was released in tandem with um uh planet terror as grindhouse i liked death proof much better than planet terror but uh we don't have to get into that (laughs) what else was this um a mighty wind is out of competition the edge of heaven is in competition the fatia keen uh uh film oh boy yeah um there's a bella tar movie there's a, you look at like the list of filmmakers and it's like there's a Lee Chang Dong movie. There is uh James Gray's We Own the Night. There is uh a, The French love James Gray. Kim Kaduk's uh Breath. Uh Catherine Breya has a movie. Naomi Kawas has a movie. Like it is a it's it's primo can, right? Like it is mm-hmm. you know, it's can uh, at its at its highest level. So very interesting. I'm trying to see if anything in a certain regard uh, played that sort of jumped up. Oh. That and Director's Fortnite seem pretty chill. I will say the the one interesting thing is the uh, the uh, Israeli film The Band's Visit that ultimately would become the Broadway musical uh, The Band's Visit was this year in a certain regard. Um, Harmony Korean's Mr. Lonely, which I've still never seen. That was the one where uh, Diego Luna is Michael, is Jackson. Michael Jackson. Yes, it's going to be a hard pass on yep. that. Yep, that me. was that was my I'm, feeling then. That is, is still. My I am happy then. to just continue living my life. Celine Sciamma's uh, Water Lilies was in uh, in certain regards. Ah, her yeah. debut. Yeah. So would have been. It's, you know how I look. I tend to look at old film festivals this way, and just being like, what would be a film festival that I would want to like you know, risk the hazards of time travel to go back and, and experience. <laughs> and this would have been a good one, I would say. We could go back and tell people to not be so mean to my Blueberry Nights. Yeah, you know what? Don't be so mean to my Blueberry Nights. We wouldn't get another Wong Kar Wai movie for six years, you, mo- you monsters. Like, Jesus Christ. Um, Alright, what else? What else do we want to say? Anything else about this can besides just, like, what a neat... What were the? I'm trying to think of what the uh, the award winners. I will say Wikipedia. Get your act together with the can your can pages because there's no rhyme or reason or flow to it. The fact that like <laughs> it is all very scattered. It's very scattered. I have to scroll down so far to get to the awards. All right, so Schnabel for Diving Bell and the Butterfly wins Best Director en route to a Lone Director nomination at the Oscars. How did you feel about the Diving Bell and the Butterfly? I think it's fine. I kind I... of do too. I did not connect with it. I didn't like it as much as I liked Before Night Falls, which was his sort of previous Oscar success. Julian Schnabel has been, like, more successful at the Oscars than you would maybe A weird think. secret, like, Oscar favorite, even though he's not... Well, he was the Best Director nominee for uh, Diving Bell, but... Uh, he's gotten yeah. two Best Actor nominees out of his... Like, he's, uh, Bardem for Before Night Falls, and then, of course, everybody's favorite nomination mm-hmm. in movie that everybody saw and has an opinion on um willem dafoe in at eternity's gate so yeah um otherwise weird weird that they i love when they just like throw out like they essentially make up the name of a prize to give to a movie just because they want to in this case they gave a this was the 60th Cannes film festival and so they gave a 60th anniversary prize to gus van sant's paranoid park why uh just because 
you know? Yeah, they do weird anniversary prizes. Remember the year that they gave the anniversary prize just to Nicole Kidman because she had so much stuff at that just, can? Just because they it liked was, her. <laughs> it was Killing of a Sacred Deer. Mm-hmm. It was The Beguiled. It was Top of the Lake. And I think something else. Wow. Can we please do Killing of a Sacred Deer soon? I want... I. I feel like nobody talks about this movie at all. I feel like nobody's going to believe us that that was... I mean, it. that was... I really liked that movie. That was a predicted Oscar movie until people saw it and they realized that the movie opens on open heart surgery. Uh, right. <laughs> but but it definitely I did have Oscar buzz movie. before that. Like, it definitely I do did. love that movie. Oh, yes. Colin Farrell in that movie is like weird core personified. The hottest man. <laughs> the hottest man. Okay. I... It's very I funny. I would risk it all, my kingdom for, um, I would let him ruin my life wow. in that movie, all of it, all of it. That is a choice. That is a choice right there. That that particular it's the right choice. character. All right. Um, all right. Anyway, back to Blueberry Nights. What else my... did it, 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 it played can, but then it didn't, oh no, it did get a, uh, a dubious award nomination from... Our friends at the Alliance of Women Film Journalists. Ah, yes, the Hall of Shame, which I'm not (laughs) quite sure what they mean from that. My guess is like there. I have a guess. One one of the things that I do think is questionable about this movie is the way women's bodies are shot. Like, there's a whole thing that's just like on Natalie Portman's crotch when it doesn't need to be. Yeah. I think like so I, th- I feel like that nomination is mostly for the Rachel Vice character, which is just a very kind of stock, unfaithful, floozy wife character that does not sure sure, pl- sure. have a ton of nuance. But okay, it's other nominees. It nominates Choke, and I saw Choke, and I don't remember much about it. So like, I'll give that to them. I'm so glad that we have a cult. We as a culture have moved on past Chuck Palahniuk. Yeah, even though again, I am a Fight Club boy, but yes, I like that movie for the right reasons anyway right um the house bunny doesn't deserve to be on this list the house bunny is a perfectly funny and good movie and anna ferris is wonderful in it and also i understand a why people didn't like 27 dresses and why they didn't like Catherine Heigl. I think they're wrong on both of those counts i think 27 (laughs) dresses is a perfectly good and and very watchable romantic comedy pitch right down the middle of your rom-com genre it's exactly what you want to watch when you're flipping through channels and you just want to veg out in front of something fun and it's great and it's cute and Catherine heigl is wonderful in it and people get so crazy about her people get so out of their mind about her drives me crazy Anyway, what were you I think say? that movie probably is not so reviled, literally, if it's just not released in January. That's maybe true. Also, if it's not called 21 Dresses or 27 Dresses, because it's one of those things where it feels like um, it it's sort of red meat to A, the people who don't like, even though it's not based on a book, like it feels very chick lit, right? You know, it's just like the hook is like, sure, she's a bridesmaid 27 times. And... It's it's a better movie. It's a better movie than its reputation is, and I will always maybe if it was called 127 Hours and Katherine Heigl chopped off her arm, people <laughs> would have taken it more seriously. Wait, 127 Dresses, where um, it's 
it's a like 10 hour Bellatar movie where it's mm-hmm. just Catherine like painstakingly trying like, on literally 127, 127 dresses, dresses in real time and then cutting her arm off at the end but it's in real time so literally it's just like you go through the whole process of her well and also because it's Bellatar, it there's a two-hour shot of boiling potatoes right yeah in between each dress she boils a potato and uh and eats it yes um eats it whole just like takes a <laughs> big bite out of it and like some of them are not boiled all the way so they're oh, like hard oh. potatoes so it takes her a long time to get through some what of is potatoes. the opposite of asmr to me is the <laughs> Catherine i go trying on dresses and eating boiled no, potatoes. no just the idea of a not fully cooked potato that's sort of raw on the inside just imagining the like the weird like crunch that that would have when you got to like the hard center of the potato is imagine doing that with an onion just like chewing into it like an apple. Oh, that was a great I like raw onions, but like you just don't eat it. That was that a great way. Seinfeld joke the one time where George lost Is his... there a Seinfeld joke about that? Yeah, George lost his glasses and there was uh, some questioning as to whether he was his he was able to spot something from across the street. And and so he like he spots like there's a nickel on the floor across the room that 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 he's able to see without his glasses and he's like when I squint I can really you know I, I can I can work and it's just like okay and then yet at the same time he goes and picks out what he thinks is an apple out of the fridge and bites into it and it's an onion. <laughs> you know George that's an onion. <laughs> Yes, it is. He couldn't tell an apple from an onion, and he's your eyewitness. I saw them making up. You can believe it. I don't know what to believe. You're eating onions, you're spotting dimes. I don't know what the hell is going on. Seinfeld, great show. Anyway, what else do we got for 127? Nora Jones, huge Grammy success. Yeah, what uh, year was that? Was that right before this? Oh shit! I look. Uh, the, I think it was the O three Grammys. Right. I'm much more comfortable with calling the Grammys the year of the ceremony. Yes. Than I. Oh, the people that do it for the Oscars, it's like, no, that's wrong. You're talking about a movie year. But that. But the Grammys are the a weird like October to October the, calendar. Yeah, the Grammys are not a, a. They do not judge a calendar year. So um, wait, now I want to bring up and see who she was nominated against. Which it's like people consider her like a one hit wonder, but then she was also in, I think it was two years later, the Ray Charles like tribute album. Right. That was like huge. And she got record of the year for doing that duet with him. All right. And it's like a lot of her other albums did sell well. Like her first three albums were all number ones. So she wins. She, she sweeps the top four categories. She wins uh, best new artist. Uh, she doesn't win the Song of the Year award because she didn't write Don't Know Why, but like Don't Know Why wins Song of the Year. And then she wins Record of the Year and Album of the Year. So I don't know what... I think it's six total Grammys, but then there was also like an engineering Grammy. So right. that's not hers. Either. Right. She also wins Best Pop Vocal Performance. So like, um, I don't know the stats on how few people have swept those top four awards, but like I'm sure it's rare competition. So anyway, Album of the Year. She wins Album of the Year over... Eminem show, Eminem, which whatever, fuck that guy. Um, Nelly's Nellyville, which like what a moment in time that Nellyville was an album of the year nomination. Like 
I love that. Um, <laughs> Bruce Springsteen's The Rising, which is kind of surprising that that Shocking didn't win. that that wouldn't have won, Be- because that's like all post-9-11. It's such a narrative around that. Right, exactly. And then the one that I imagine that both of us probably would have voted for, which is the Dixie Chicks Home. Um, which is not the best Dixie Chicks album. But, right, this was the album with Long Time Gone and Traveling Soldier and the Landslide cover, which, my unpopular opinion, is I have no use for the Dixie Chicks Landslide cover. It's not bad, but, like, I, why do we need it? Like, the original... Why would you listen to that version when you can listen to the version from the dance? This is like... my, this is my feeling. Um, yes. yes. All right, anyway. Thank you for, thank you for standing in that truth. I do think we need to talk about Nora Jones because I do think in the reception of this, I think it's part of the reason why people were so mean. Because, like, Nora Jones was incredibly successful, but never cool. Like, so, right. like, I think there is a certain snobbery that goes into it that it's, like, people were, like, Nora Jones in a movie and already rolling their eyes about it. You know, the hip, cool people. Nora um, Jones was synonymous with Starbucks music, right? I was gonna bring up Starbucks music. Um, Can I say that I bought my Nora Jones album at a Starbucks? Did you really? What a uh, great story. I, I love that. I absolutely did. Also, Perfect. if Cat Power is in this movie, we do know that Wong Kar Wai loves to get his music at Starbucks. <laughs> um, who else? Wait, who else could they have cast in this movie to like really round that out? Like, who would have been? India Ari. <gasps> India Ari. Who I also bought that album at a Starbucks. India Ari as the, as the Natalie Port role and Corinne Bailey Ray as um as the Rachel Vice character. Just really like cast it out fully. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. Starbucks didn't stop selling CDs until 2015. Wow. Good for them. I feel like Starbucks could still get away with selling CDs. I feel like they are the only retailer who could probably pull it off. I should also say that uh Record of the Year and Song of the Year nominee that year, but not Album of the Year. Uh, nominee was Vanessa Carlton's A Thousand Miles, which is a top five karaoke song of all time. Like, it's, I was talking to somebody recently who said they had done uh, A Thousand Miles at karaoke and the like, the absolute way that like by the end of that, everybody is singing along with you. And it's so true. It's like a universal truth to that. <laughs> um, However, if you did don't know why, I think people would probably throw tomatoes at you. Yeah, don't don't do don't know why at a, because here's the thing about don't know why. It's it's not a sing-along song and it's the only reason you would do don't know why at karaoke is if you really can sing and you want to like show off your vocal chops and that is not what karaoke is for. Uh that is for open mic night and that is for um That would be an even shittier place to do Don't Know Why, to go to an open mic and be like, here's one of my favorite songs, Don't Know Why. (laughs) Well, all right, true. But it's also, again, the Vonda Shepard of it all. Like this, it's it's the song that you audition for to be like the in-house chanteuse at like a hotel lounge, right? Like that's, that's the vibe there. Um. Good for Nora Jones for winning all that. Also, she won Best New Artist over Avril, Michelle Branch, John Mayer, and Ashanti. Again, a real snapshot. Oh, wow. <laughs> a real snapshot of 2003 right there. I feel like this, I wanted, I was the one who wanted to talk more about the whole Nora Jones thing, and I feel like I'm just shitting on her. She's actually still making like good, interesting music that's like 
I would like I her to be in movies again. I would like to, to, you know, put her in another movie. It's again, give her an actual character. Give her an actual character. Give her, you know, she doesn't have to be the lead in something. It's interesting. We talk about the buzz for this movie. Because obviously the fact that Nora Jones was going to be the lead in Wong Kar Wai's first English language movie, part of the reaction to that is like, huh. Must be a thing there. But yeah. Uh, the other thing is, right, Wong Kar Wai's a genius. I trust him. Clearly there must be something there. And there is a precedent. Well, it happened. At, like there are other instances where a sort of atypical, not like – Act like non actor. I mean, Bette Midler was considered a cabaret actor. This is sort of what I'm saying. Bette Midler in the Rose. Obviously, Lady Gaga and A Star is Born would come later. But these moments were like, oh, that person's not an actor. And then you see them in the the role and they have, you know, real presence and gravitas and all this sort of stuff. And it didn't really happen in this with Nora Jones, but like, try it again. Maybe she doesn't want to. Maybe that's the other thing with her. But like, I don't know. Give it a shot. What you're saying is come away with her acting talents. Right. I always, for the longest time, would get Nora Jones and Rashida Jones confused, not in who they were, but that I would mistakenly think that Nora Jones was Quincy Jones's daughter. And she is Ravi Shankar's daughter, which, like, that's a really interesting musical legacy there. Um, Yeah, Nora Jones is a nepotism hire. (laughs) <laughs> Nora Jones is like the is essentially like a Beatles descendant, right? Because obviously, like Ravi Shankar had such you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know ties to George Harrison and whatnot and all that. But yes, uh, for the longest time, I would be like, well, obviously Nora Jones won all those Grammys. She's Quincy Jones's daughter, and people would be like, idiot, you? that's Rashida Jones. What are you talking about? Right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, but yes, so. A little, I'm not, I'm not like fully ready to go like full like justice for Nora Jones, but like, don't be mean. Don't be mean to her. This movie had its problems that were not, were not Nora Jones. Not her fault. Yeah. Um, I also think it's interesting that the screenplay was co written by Lawrence Block, who I only know of from working in the public library. And he's one of those like mystery writers who like has like a whole shelf full of books and, that's what I'm saying about this movie, is it feels like a certain type of a novel. So it's not surprising mm-hmm. that he collaborated with someone who is, like, schlock novelist. Yes. Um, I've never read a Lawrence Block book. He was, I will say, as I'm looking at his uh, Wikipedia page, he was born in Buffalo, New York. So I guess I have to support him to a degree. Um but yeah, it's like mystery fiction, crime fiction, like that kind of thing. His recurring characters are these sort of like hard-boiled detectives and whatnot. And it's an interesting choice for, again, Wong Kar Wai, who is so, by reputation at least, and again, I've only seen Happy Together, um, romantic. Like, I feel like that's one of the mm-hmm. big sort of, like, touchstones for Wong Kar Wai is this sort of romanticism. And yeah, it's an odd choice to co-script this. And because this is this is a movie that is romantic on its edges. I think the stuff with Jude Law and Nora Jones, the, like, bookends of this movie, is going for sort of a swoony romance. And there is absolutely some kind of primordial appeal to the idea of 
I frequent this little cafe and the guy who makes the blueberry pie is gorgeous and like clearly has a thing for me. And I go in there every day and I eventually break up with my shitty boyfriend and we sort of grow closer and then we get together. Like there is a, a, a archetypical romance almost, right? And there's an appeal to that. And part of me wants to just like dig out the middle part of this movie and just be like, make another movie. Like do this shit somewhere mm-hmm. else. Like let me just sort of marinate in the romanticism of the New York parts of this movie. I also wanted to wish that Wong Kar Wai had made more of a New York movie, but that's me being selfish. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, he's so good at creating like city dwellings and like the atmosphere of what's, what that's like yeah. that like, it feels like this is more of just like an America movie, though I would love to see specifically his New York movie, yes. you know, or like, or just fucking keep it in Vegas. Like, yes. what's his, like, even a Vegas movie? This is why I really, I wish that we would get more English language Wong Kar Wai movies because, like, and again, it's selfish, but like, I do want to see him sort of, you know, you're right, make a New York movie, make a Vegas movie, make a, you know, uh, God forbid an LA movie. Um, I think it'd be really interesting. Also, just make more movies in general. I would love that. What is his big thing coming up? It's a TV thing, right? Uh, it's a mini series. Sure. I don't know much about it. I just know that people are anticipating it. I mean, yeah. As they should. As they should. Yeah. What is this thing? I'm trying to look this up now and see what it would be called. I don't know. We'll figure it out. Um, <laughs> anyway, anything else before we uh, move on? Uh, no, let's move on to the IMDb game. All right. Why don't I explain? Explain it. What is the IMDb <laughs> Explain yourself. Game? Um, every week we end our episodes with the IMDb game, wherein we challenge each other with an actor or actress and try to guess the top four titles that IMDb says they are most known for. If any of those titles are television, voice-only performances, or non-acting credits, we mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles release years as a clue, and if that's not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints. Fantastic. That's the IMDb game. Sure is. So, Joe, would you like to give or guess first? I mean, I'll give first. Mine is a little bit of a... Mine is sort of impish on my part to give this person to you. Um, And so we might make room for, uh, if this is too weird or difficult, that we could uh, skip to something else. But anyway... Uh, talking about Nora Jones and sort of a, you know atypical Grammy-winning singer-songwriter showing up in a movie, I was like, who else along that same kind of vibe could I give to see if Chris could guess they're known for? And what I landed on, who I landed on, was oh no, Grammy winner and also sometime Grammy host Alicia Keys. Oh, okay. Who did you think I was going so, to? So, uh, nominated, uh, was she nominated against Nora Jones? Uh, she wasn't, I believe, I don't believe. Hold okay. on a second. I thought the Diary of Alicia Keys was nominated for Album of the Year, but that's probably a different No, the year. only thing she's there on that year's Grammy is she and Cindy Lauper presented Best New Artist, so she must have won Best New Artist the year before. 
This is going to be really hard because I honestly... She did. I know that she has been in movies as an actress. Wait, can I time out and give you who Alicia Keys beat for Best New Artist in, o- in O2? Uh, well, I mean, Alicia Keys is a good Best New Artist win, but yeah. shoot. Uh, well, from the like least interesting to you to the most interesting, um, David Gray, that British artist who had that song Babylon. <laughs> I had several David Gray albums. Did you really? You cannot uh, do this to again, me. Again. I was not cool in the early 2000s. Did you get your David Gray albums at Starbucks? Because that no. could have happened. Um, Linkin Park, who... I shamefully Ugh. was kind of very much into at that point in my life. Um, Such a fucking boy. Ah, uh, I know they had some jams though. Okay, Nelly Furtado, which was like pre Timbaland, like spectacular. I'm like this a is bird, I'm like Nelly a bird, Furtado. Nelly Furtado, and the aforementioned India Ari. So what I'm saying is a movie that mm. stars Nora Jones, Alicia Keys, India Ari, Nelly Furtado, and Corinne Bailey Ray. That's that's yes. Wong Kar Wai's next movie. All right. Anyway, Alicia Keys known for. She hasn't. She does not have a ton of acting credits. In like films, so. One of them has to be the Secret Life of Bees because it's the only one I can remember. Yep, Secret Life of Bees. Oh, oh, sorry. I should say one of these is purely a soundtrack credit. It is not a movie she's in. I don't believe. Can I at least ask if it is an original song? Like, was that song written for the movie? Yes, very much so. Very, okay, like, I think, kind of I think famously so. That's because it's the, the James Bond movie she did. Yes. Do you remember which James Bond movie? Quantum of Solace. Quantum of Terrible. Solace, correct. All right, so your other two, she's in them as an actress. Um, One of the... I'm just going to do hints because... It'll take too long otherwise. Okay. One of them is kind of an ensemble crime movie with like kind of a grubby ensemble that is. Oh. It's is mostly it that movie, men. It has shown up on somebody's known I think for, it has. Or a few. Is it that movie The Losers? No, but it's it's a movie that I sometimes might confuse with The Losers. It is. Um, because it's like people holding guns on the poster, just like the Losers poster. Yes. It's all... Is it Smoke and Aces? It's Smoke and Aces. The yeah, cast those and are two interchangeable movies. The cast in Smoke and Aces is absolutely unhinged. So Alicia Keys and Taraji P. Henson are like the women in this movie. But it's... And I think they're lesbians. Oh, really? Oh, that's interesting. I've um, seen this movie, unfortunately. Andy Garcia, Martin Henderson, Common, Ben Affleck, Peter Berg... Alex Rocco from uh, Mo Green from The Godfather. Wayne Newton is in this movie. Ray Liotta, Ryan Reynolds, and first build in this movie, unfortunately, is Jeremy Piven. Oh, boy. Yes. All right. Oh, boy. Your next moment one, in time where we allowed Jeremy Piven to be a star. You're, oh, honestly. Honest God. to God. Only because Shall people we forget? only because people liked Entourage. It's so gross. It's like what a gross <sighs> Entourage thing. is gross. Yeah, that's what I mean. All right. So this next one is a decidedly girlier movie. It is two uh lead actresses. Um I imagine Alicia Keys plays like the best friend to the main character. Um from the one press photo I see. That does seem to be the case. 
Um, it is a movie that is mostly notable as kind of a footnote in that it is the it is a movie that two Marvel stars starred in together before they did Marvel movies. And it's a girly movie. Yes. It is also a movie that is um, from... It is very much decidedly a post-Devil Wears Prada movie. Oh, I know what this is. It's The Nanny Diaries. Because the Nanny that Diaries. was a big book Novel. first, and it sold... Um, I actually like that movie from what I remember of it. Laura Linney's very good in it. Laura Linney, Scarlett Johansson. But it's Chris Evans and Scarlett Johansson yes. because I was like, this is, you're saying that it's a movie for women, uh, which means that there is a female character in it. Yep. And there's not uh, a lot to go off yep. of Marvel yep. that has a female character. There so. you go. All right. Um, I kind of strong armed you with the hints there, but I figured we'd be here all day trying to get you to come up yes. with what Alicia Keys' supporting actress uh, movies were. Very good. Well, then, I guess it's to me to figure out if I want to be mean to you similarly (laughs) or if I just want to give you the easy one that I had. Because as I was telling Joe before we got on mic, it took me over 20 people to find someone we hadn't done this week. It was not my week for picking IMTP game. Um, Okay, I'm not going to force you to do Dana Ivy, which would have been the hard one. Wait, can I try quickly and then we can, like, move on? Okay, you can try quickly. How many Adams families? Just one. Just, Just the, the first, first one. one. Well, it should be both of them. Uh, Home Alone 2. No. Okay, well, then I'm done. I'm out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the other ones are Rush Hour 3, the Sabrina remake, and The Color Purple. Wow. Would never in a bajillion years have gotten that. All right. I know. All okay. Right. All right. So, uh, Nora Jones... Uh, Dana Ivey would have been from Nora Jones' first feature in two weeks' notice. But Nora Jones also, notably, uh, did an original song and apparently appears on screen. I have never seen this movie. I will never see this movie. Uh, In Ted, starring Mark Wahlberg. You know I watched Ted because it was an Oscar nominee. (laughs) This was before I was watching all of them. This is when I would pick and choose. And to be frank, I may go back to that. Oh, no. So Breakthrough have, broke me. There is. I was like, this piece of shit. You, you're, there are so many hours in a day, Chris, in a, in a lifetime. You do not want to waste any of them on Ted. Um, all right. So, wait. So, who am I doing from Ted? Mark Wahlberg. Ah, Boo. Um, I'm telling you, it took me a long time to find someone no, we hadn't done. No, no. Fair. Fair. Um, all right. How is this going to work? And it's all... Movie like movies that he was in, right? It's no like producer credits that he's not in. I will say one of them it lists him and is known for as a producer, but but it's he's a movie that it. he's in. Okay, yes. Um. All right. So I'm gonna guess The Departed. His Oscar nomination. His Correct. Oscar nomination. Listen, people liked seeing him swear, so they gave him an Oscar nomination for it. Congratulations, Stupid. everybody! All right. Um. The Fighter. The fighter, that's the one with that's his the producer, producer credit. credit. Yeah, okay. All those MTV girls are <laughs> boosting up that SEO for the movie. Honestly, for, it's so weird that two such reprehensible human beings as Mark Wahlberg and David O. Russell could be so good together in a way that I really like. Like, they together managed to produce two movies that I'm just like, well, it's 
I love both of those movies, and Wahlberg is great in both of them. And it's not a fair universe. And sometimes two awful people can give me art that I, I really think he's love. he's fine in The Fighter. I prefer him in Huckabee. Oh, but totally. that's because I think Mark Wahlberg is giving his best performance playing stupid people. But... It's when he's because sometimes he gives a performance playing a stupid person who's not supposed to be stupid, and then you get the happening, um, and that's the that's the bad side of that. But yes, right. uh, in general, well, I've said this before. He is horrible when he has to be earnest, but when he yeah. has to be intentionally stupid, he's good. Is Ted one of them? Ted is one of them. Okay. You are very close to a perfect score. God, how ironic! I get a perfect score on Mark Wahlberg. All right, so it's not going to be Huckabee's. Um, I don't think it's going to be something like Three Kings. I think it's going to be, I think the fourth one is probably going to be one of his Peter Berg movies. Now, what one of his Peter Berg movies? Cause like those two codependent dipshits can't seem to make a movie without each other for the last like eight years. And, um, if that had, by the way, if that was ever the case for a, a, female actress and a female director people would absolutely discredit them and people would absolutely like brush them aside as being like a novelty act or whatever. but what's the audience for that for those movies that just does nothing but stoke that audience republicans egos. like like that's my answer to that you. like it's that movies made for republicans okay um i'm gonna guess that it's lone survivor incorrect okay what if i'm totally up a creek and it's fucking like the happening all right anyway um happening made a lot of happening money. made a lot of money i also feel like also the fact that planet of the apes shows up on tim roth's makes me want to maybe say planet of the apes but i don't know the problem with mark Wahlberg is mark Wahlberg is like the opposite of clive owen which is that at some point somebody was like Mark Wahlberg is bankable, and they never stopped making Mark Wahlberg movies. Like, I just want to say, I know I'm giving you a hint, but you helped me all along with Alicia Keys. You are overthinking this. Oh, okay. There's a real obvious one. You are fully overthinking this. I'm probably overlooking like a really obvious Mark Wahlberg movie. Oh, it's Boogie Nights. Jesus Christ. It's Boogie Nights. Of it's course. Nights. Again, another movie that fills your, fulfills your thesis. He's fantastic playing a dumb character. Exactly. He's genuinely very funny in that movie. But it is, I will chalk most of it. It's like when you chalk up the performance of a child actor to a director. That's absolutely how I uh, appreciate all the good Mark Wahlberg performances. Is that like, I fully credit the director for getting that out of him. So. Oh, no, totally. That's That's actually maybe what it is, is that it's directors pulling his stupidity out of him. Yeah. Yes, I. It's like if it's, we haven't shit on him enough, can I maybe be a dick for a second? Uh, about Mark Wahlberg, please do. In Boogie Nights, how many people do we think he told that was his penis until <laughs> they started being like it's a prosthetic? Okay, how mad was he when they when they decided when they were like, like, no, we gave him a prosthetic? Yeah, ah, uh, furious probably. Well, I didn't get a perfect score. Thank you for bailing me out of my tailspin, though, because I literally would have been like Deepwater Horizon and then just wanted to kill myself. <laughs> well, also, if you had gotten one more wrong movie, I would have given you the year and you would have gotten it. I would have got it right away. Yourself. Right. Exactly. Exactly. All right.
All right, that's our episodes, guys. This is the last call on both our mailbag and listener's choice episodes. You have until the end of the day on uh, how many days are in November 30th? 30. Uh, November 30th. And uh, this, I believe, comes out on the 29th. Um, listener's choice. No movies after uh, 2019. You can only submit one movie title. If you say Kill Bill, you have to say which Kill Bill you want. Things like that. Uh, mailbag, ask us any type of questions about Oscar races past uh, and the current one. You can ask us uh, any questions uh, that you kind of have in mind. Just, uh, you know, try not to have it be a question that we have to nail it down to one thing because that's not fun we want to talk about a bunch of things uh but that's our episode if you guys want more this had oscar buzz you can check out the tumblr at this had oscarbuzz.tumblr.com you should also follow us on twitter at had underscore oscar underscore buzz joe yes where can the listeners um find more of you well you can uh watch me tweeting through my blueberry days and blueberry nights on twitter at joe reed reed spelled r-e-i-d and i'm also on letterboxd as joe reed reed spelled the same way and you can catch me uh waiting till i see the sun on twitter and letterboxd <laughs> at crispy file that's f-e-i-l uh we'd like to thank kyle cummings for his fantastic artwork and dave gonzalez and gavin mevius for their technical guidance please remember to rate like and review us on spotify apple Podcasts, google play stitcher wherever else you get podcasts five star review in particular really helps us out with apple podcast visibility so if you haven't already we don't know why you didn't review that's all for this week, and we'll be back next week for more buzz. Prison, honey. I don't know why I didn't come. I left you by the house of fun.